My name is Chris Borland. I walked away from pro football and a $2.9 million contract with the San Francisco 49ers because I didn't want to develop CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is caused by repeated brain injury. Researchers at Boston University studied the brains of 111 deceased NFL players. They found CTE in 110. CTE is a brain disease that causes depression, aggression, dementia, and in some cases, suicide. Yet for many years, the NFL denied the link. Unfortunately, the NFL isn't the only powerful player that's sidelining science. Lobbyists in many industries are paid handsomely to convince lawmakers to undermine science that protects our health. We all need to speak up and make sure that science isn't sidelined. Because when powerful interests keep science from the decision-making process, people get hurt. Join with me today to become a science champion. Our health and well-being depend on it. public service announcement from the Union of Concerned Scientists featuring former San Francisco 49ers linebacker Chris Borland. Welcome to the Got Science podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today we're going to hear about the tactics used by powerful organizations like the NFL to keep science on the sidelines. Speaking of which, our correspondent Shreya Dervasala is back this week with another egregious installment of you guessed it, sidelining science. It's football season. Here at podcast headquarters, we're thinking about first downs, touchdowns, and unfortunately, traumatic brain injuries. Many of us at UCS love football, but we don't love the strategies the NFL has used to discredit the science behind a degenerative brain condition diagnosed in many professional football players, caused by repeated collisions. We also don't love that certain powerful interests, like the NFL, will do everything they can to make science go away when it's inconvenient for their business. Science should inform best practices for protecting people's health and safety, but sometimes it's pushed to the sidelines by those with something to gain. And when you look at enough cases where this has happened, you start to see patterns. At UCS, Policy analyst Jenna Reed has put together a series of case studies about these patterns of deception and manipulation practiced by industry lobbyists. She's calling it the disinformation playbook, and it chronicles the tactics companies in a range of industries use to punt on science, often at the expense of real people. Jenna joined us to talk about this project and brought a special guest who knows a little something about playbooks. Chris Borland is a former linebacker for the San Francisco 49ers. Coming off an All-American college career at the University of Wisconsin, Chris was named Defensive Rookie of the Month in 2014. He was the first rookie linebacker in the team's history to get two interceptions in one game, and he led the team in tackles. But shortly after the season ended, he retired from professional football, citing his concern over the consequences of repeated blows to the head. Chris and Jenna spoke with our correspondent Brian Wadsworth about the disinformation playbook, how the NFL joined the roster of organizations that try to sideline science, and how Chris made the decision that his health was more important than his pro career. Brian, take it away. 
Thanks, Colleen. This is Brian Wadsworth for Got Science. I'm here to discuss the Disinformation Playbook with Jenna Reed from the Center for Science and Democracy at UCS and Chris Borland, a former pro football player who left the NFL after his rookie season because of his concerns about CTE. We're here on the beautiful campus of Cal Lutheran University. Uh, and uh, for the feel of sports that we're talking about today, we actually have a lot of uh, kids practicing in the background. Jenna, I'll start with you since you conducted the research on the playbook. Uh, most people are familiar with how the tobacco companies intentionally misled the public about the dangers of cigarette smoking. And UCS has also been a leader in exposing the fossil fuel industry's campaign of deception around climate change. What other industries have been sidelining science with similar tactics? The Disinformation Playbook is featuring a wide variety of case studies across companies and across industries. It's not just about the tobacco industry, which had a long history of sort of sidelining science and manipulating the science in order to create the desired results of scientific studies to uh, deceive the public about the science and the impacts of uh, tobacco on human health. But this is, this is sort of a broader problem that we're seeing when special interests are manipulating the science during not just the scientific process where they can be faking studies or writing the studies themselves and playing them off as if they're written by independent scientists, but they're also sort of interfering with the policy process. Uh, and, th and that is a serious problem because it not only defeats the public trust in companies and in the government who's relying on science to create good decisions for the public interest, theoretically, but also it's, you know, it's sort of eroding the scientific enterprise more broadly. So the, not just the tobacco industry has done this. This is something that has actually been done even farther back than the tobacco industry, including the chemical industry. Silica is a good example of a, a compound, the science on which has been hidden for many, many decades. It's been approved for use since the 1930s. And since then, the industry that sort of has created silica has been denying that there are any health impacts associated with inhalation of silica dust. And because of that, because of the chemical industry sort of interfering in the science and the way that the science is communicated about silica, we've had delay in appropriate regulation of the compound for decades. Uh, the wow. silica rule was only just finally issued by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration just last year. And it has since been delayed by the current administration. Was there anything new that you came up with in your research that the public should know about? Sure. So a lot of the research that went into this uh, disinformation playbook was sort of an accumulation of a lot of the work that we've already done at the Center for Science and Democracy on different companies that have interfered in the science-based policymaking process. And so in sort of compiling all of those examples, it was really interesting to me to see that this is such a pervasive issue across industries, as I mentioned before. But also, it's really such a calculated effort. These companies have got it down to a science the way that they're using these tactics to undermine the science, even silencing scientists, and then ultimately having some really powerful influence over our lawmakers who are responsible for making decisions based on independent objective science uh, to protect us, protect our health and safety. So that's, I think, the sort of the major takeaway of all this research is that there's a broad pattern. Companies are, are using these tactics in very insidious ways and that these sidelighting science by companies 
actually has real life impacts. It's not just, you know, a ghost written study here and there. It's real lives impacted by those studies because a drug stays on the market for longer than it should, for example. And the public doesn't often hear about these things. Right, yeah. So that's that's part of the disinformation playbook is sowing doubt around science that might be unfavorable to a company's bottom line and keeping that information from the public, keeping the light off of the research that's very clear that would support possibly taking a product off the market that would then hurt a company. So what we need is more transparency in scientific research, especially when it's being done by a company that might have an interest in the outcome of that science. Right. So we're calling it a playbook, and the playbook does highlight a number of specific tactics, which we're calling plays, that companies have used repeatedly over time in multiple industries to undermine science when it doesn't align with their financial interests. And we've given the plays names like the fake. Can you give an example of, of that one? So the fake can actually be completed in a couple of different ways, and we would call those ways typically research misconduct. During the scientific design, there are a few different ways that researchers can change either the way that the study is designed or the way that the study results are analyzed in order to create results that might be more favorable to a company, for example. One example of the fake being used in practice by a company is with the pharmaceutical drug maker Merck, with the drug Vioxx, which was an anti-inflammatory drug meant to treat arthritis. It was approved in 1999 by the FDA, and in order to get it approved, the company had actually uh, manipulated some of the clinical trials so that the control group for those trials was actually treated with naproxen, which is basically a leave, instead of having a control that was taking a placebo. Those trials were actually not as accurate as they should have been. In manipulating those results, the pharmaceutical company Merck ended up discounting the role that the drug had in the side effect that was commonly associated with taking the drug, which is increased risk of heart attack. So that was one example of a company that has uh, manipulated the results in order to reach a desired outcome. Within the Vioxx case, there's actually a few different ways that the company used the fake. They also took out certain data points where people had heart attacks, just took those individuals out of the data set completely so that they could alter the results, the, the number of individuals who had had heart attacks. And they also, uh, Vioxx had ghostwritten several different studies. They, there were documents that had come out with a court case where the company had written external author with a question mark in the place of where the author's name should be. And then they Oops. just sort of found, exactly, they found an independent expert who they, who the, whose name they later stuck in there, but it had actually been fully written by the company itself. So those are some examples of the way in which companies can change the results. And, and what that actually meant was that there were people for five years until the drug came off the market in 2004, when these results were confirmed, there were people who had been on this drug for years who were having heart attacks and that information was not being made available to them that this was even a risk for taking an a drug for arthritis. Uh, you and know, it, did it take this lawsuit to bring all this information to light or how else do we get that information out? Right, yeah. So a lot of this information on how companies are actually manipulating science does come out 
of court cases like this one, because otherwise that information isn't really made available to the public. We have to dig through an assortment of legal documents in order to find out that, that these companies were engaging in this type of research misconduct in the first place. And someone has to be looking for it. Exactly, and someone has to be looking. So, you know, typically this type of stuff can be caught in a peer review type situation, uh, but there's a lot that if the authors aren't disclosing that information to begin with, or, you know, if they're not disclosing the way in which the company is funding the study or the exact type of relationship that the company has with the author of the study, then that information won't be made available to the public. And that's troubling, especially, you know, in, in situations like this, this is a life or death situation. These individuals who were taking this drug, some of them passed away because of the side effect that was not being disclosed to them. Right. Uh, now, Chris is here because of another play we call The Blitz, which is related to pro football. Can you summarize that for us? Sure. The Blitz is a play where companies uh, can actually single out a scientist in an attempt to silence him or her because of research findings that a company's a product or activities are actually causing issues, whether it's a human health issue or environmental problem that's caused by the product or activity. So, you know, this has happened for years. This is something that many different companies have employed. We've seen this with the fossil fuel industry and Michael Mann. The case featured in the disinformation playbook for the Blitz is the National Football League and the way that they handled um, the research emerging out of a lab at the University of Pittsburgh from Bennett Amalu, who was studying brains from deceased NFL players and found that there was impacts from football-related head injuries. Bennett Amalu's study found that concussions sustained in football-related injuries were actually related to a more chronic brain disease called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. After Bennett Amalu's research became publicly available, the NFL called for that study to be retracted. Uh, Bennett Amalu luckily persisted and continued to publish his research despite being ostracized and dismissed by the NFL. The NFL held a conference on the issue of CTE and actually didn't invite Amalu, even though his study was one of the first ones to be completed and to look at a player's brain and the impacts that head injuries had had on him. And so Amalu persisted, which was incredibly important because his research has been affirmed by several other researchers, uh, including Boston University, which just released results after they had studied 111 former NFL players' brains and found that all but one of them had signs of CTE, a brain disease that leads to depression, aggression, dementia, and sometimes suicide. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, and, and a lot of people may actually be familiar with Omalu and his work because of the movie Concussion with Will Smith, right? Right, yep, that's him. So that's a good segue to go to Chris, I think. Thanks, Jenna. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview featuring former NFL player Chris Borland. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like what you hear, leave a review on iTunes and please share us with your friends and colleagues. You can find out more about the Disinformation Playbook at ucsusa.org slash playbook. 
Oh, and stick around after the interview for our sidelining science segment with Shreya Dravasula. Now, let's get back to our interview with Brian Wadsworth and Chris Borland. So Chris, how long were you thinking about retiring or did something sudden trigger the decision? Um, it wasn't sudden, but yeah, I think a concussion I sustained in camp prior to my rookie season kind of changed my approach towards football. Your rookie season. My rookie the, season with, with the NFL. With the 49ers, yeah. yeah. yeah I think it was three weeks or so into what's called fall camp or training camp where you practice every day. Um, and it was a routine play. I was, I was just concussed slightly, so a little dizzy, a little kind of had a disequilibrium in my balance and a little foggy for the rest of the day. Uh, that's not something that's uncommon for an inside linebacker. However, I was just starting my career. And so I, with everything that was going on in the literature and in the news, um, and with some tragic stories that had come like Junior Seau and Dave Dewerson and Ray Easterling and others, you know, I thought, what's going to ha realistically happen to me if I do this for a long time? At that point, were you mostly just concerned about actual diagnosed concussions, or had you already been hearing about the possibility that subconcussive hits? Oh, I had, I was I was ignorant to it all. You know, I'd heard the acronym CTE. Concussions were a hot topic, but I didn't know about subconcussive hits. I didn't know about the biomechanics behind the injury. Um, I didn't even know that chronic traumatic encephalopathy was what CTE stood for. So I really truly started from square one and really spent the entirety of my rookie season looking into the consequences of, of a long career at one of the most dangerous positions. I was a run-stuffing inside linebacker in a league and in a conference within a league that liked to run the ball a lot. It's what I'd done at Wisconsin, and uh, I'd played both ways throughout high school. So for me, I, I think that, that factors into my decision, but it wasn't rash. It was an excruciating exploration because I'm a starting linebacker and performing well, yet um, reading about these tragedies and reading about what might be going on in my brain as I'm playing. So it took. It really took from August of 14 until up until the day that I that I called the 49ers in March of, of 15 to really make the decision. I, I thought I, I knew towards the end of the year, but having dedicated my life to something, it was it was very hard. Yeah, I could imagine. Now, uh, I mean, your concern about your brain actually led you to participate in a couple of scientific studies after you retired. What was that like? What did you learn? Yeah, that was a new experience for me, at least from the standpoint that I had, was armed with information now. I'd actually, Wisconsin's a member institution, the Medical College of Wisconsin, in what the NCAA and Department of Defense call the Grand Alliance, where it's supposedly the largest study ever um, conducted of concussions. They're mm -hmm. trying to capture as many as possible. You know, I don't think everybody that participated in that is, is a good representation of what actually playing is. So after I'd quit, I actually began to get involved in, in research that was ongoing. Um, a brain spec scan done at a private institution. I did work at Johns Hopkins, and I'm involved in the DTECT study that they're doing at Boston University, which the latter most is, is important to me because it tracks you over a long period of time. There's not much in the way of epidemiological studies for, for football players, so it'll be nice to see, vital really, to see what happens to guys with varying experience within the game, what happens over the course of their life. So you'll be checking in with that over the course of years? I've got uh, an email waiting for me to do the, <laughs> the uh, online portion right now. Great. So why are you standing up for science with the Union of Concerned Scientists now? Well, most simply, truth. I think that's, that's important. Um, but for me, I think especially with kids, it's sad to see doubt being sown. 
in a field where children are at risk. So you see research that comes out that you know the white matter in children's brain changes with one season of football. Uh, you see research that comes out the amount of time you play is correlated to the extent to which you have symptoms of CTE, on and on and on. And yet there's five. There's a TV show with five-year-olds playing tackle football, and the NFL propagates this myth that there's safe tackling or that the research is still evolving, which of course it is, but um, or that equipment is the answer. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, it's a prime example of the blitz technique. I think there's a slim sliver of a gap between correlation and causation with this issue, and they live in that gap, mm-hmm. and, and they blow up that gap and show everybody that gap. But in reality, you know, I think we can draw some conclusions. So that's why it's important to me. I made a pragmatic decision about my own personal health and found myself cast in this role as an advocate, uh, which at first I, I was uncomfortable with, but there's value in it. And I, and I think over the past couple of years, I've been a part of some really great things. So it's been over two years now, I think, since you left football. Yeah. Uh, so what's next for you? And do you miss it at all? Yeah, I think I'll always miss playing. I think anybody that's played, you know, up and through the pros, you know, when you get around it, there's a practice going on 200 yards from us right now, <laughs> and the click clack of the cleats and, and the smell of the grass and all of that, uh, you'll always miss. But I don't miss two days. I don't miss being in pain, and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of it I don't miss. So. I stay busy. I still do some advocacy. One of the things I've been excited about being involved in is Requiem for a Running Back. It's a yet-to-be-released documentary film due out in January of 2018. And for my money, it's the best representation of the issue. It follows the journey of a woman and her father, who was a longtime player and coach. And it illustrates to me the fact that brain injury and these issues happen not only to the player that goes through it, but everyone within their inner circle, from family to caregivers to those that they work with. And that's not a topic that always gets a lot of attention. You'll you'll hear players asked, would you do it all again? And to a man, at most players say yes, no matter how they're doing. Mm. I think you may get a different answer, at least a more nuanced answer, if you ask their wives or daughters or children or brothers and sisters. The film really zeroes in on that, and uh, there's a lot of power in that to me. And then I've launched my own company, so we're actually trying to turn a negative into a positive by by doing meditation with active athletes. I think it's a great resource for kids from high school, college, and on up that have uh, tremendously stressful lives and not always the tools to deal with that. So last question, what would you like to see happen with the sport, or do you think there is any way to make it safer? I think there's measures that can be taken. One thing that I think is imperative is that we, we mandate waiting until high school. And to me, it's actually a silver lining with this issue. Repetitive brain trauma in football can be really contentious and adversarial. However, I I think a lot of people who are experts in football would agree the best thing if you wanted to turn a seven-year-old boy into an NFL superstar is to have him wait, play a wide variety of sports, come into football healthy, and and learn good technique. Is there Uh, anything the NFL can do besides stopping sidelining science? I, you know, I, I don't think you can look to the NFL. One thing, if I, if I were in their shoes, and they may have done this calculation on their end and seen the writing on the wall that football might be on the way out and just trying to milk the golden cow for the next 50 years. If I wanted to maintain football for the next 100 or plus, I would eliminate youth tackle, adopt flag until a certain age, and then minimize contact in high school and college. It's trending in that way. After the 2011 collective bargaining agreement in the NFL, you can only hit once weekly throughout the season. However, at Wisconsin, we hit two and sometimes three times a week. In high school, we hit two and three times a week. Most brain injuries happen in practice, not games. It makes no sense to me that we're having 
you know, children as young as five years old hit their head more than professionals making millions of dollars. So I think waiting, minimizing exposure, and then looking into providing health care and perhaps a fund for former players that do succumb to these struggles. Not every player does, but it's tremendously expensive. And you know, I think like other industries we've mentioned, the NFL has done a really good job of privatizing the profits and socializing the costs. And mm. a lot of this is passed on to the communities where these people live. Nicely said. Um, thanks again for doing this with us, Chris. Absolutely. Thank you. So, Jenna, a final question for you. I asked Chris what he would like to see happen in football. I'd like to ask you a more general question in terms of what would you like to see happen that would stop corporations from sidelining science with the disinformation playbook? And uh, how can our listeners help? Yeah, so I think the first thing that's an opportunity is that with the disinformation playbook, we have a list of plays that we know companies are using to sideline science. So that's the first step, is we already have their playbook in hand. And so because we already know what tactics they use, it makes it easier to go up against those tactics. We have a long list of recommendations in the disinformation playbook. There are a lot of ways that companies can improve transparency and accountability to the public when it comes to the way in which they're engaging in research and science. And, you know, there's some minimum standards of disclosure that we'd like to see when companies are funding a study. We'd like to make sure that there's disclosure of that funding relationship and the type of funding relationship, what exactly it entails. And then there's even further steps that companies can take to be truly good corporate citizens. As Chris mentioned before, I think one of the major issues with a lot of the cases that we talk about in the playbook is that companies are not being completely honest with the public or even with their employees or with, in Chris's case, with the NFL players about the impacts that a product or playing a sport has on their personal lives. So the bottom line is that we'd like to see companies be more honest and forthright about emerging science that might detail impacts of a company's products on our health and safety. One improvement that I'd like to see made and one of the recommendations we have in the playbook is especially relevant today as the current administration is one of the most conflicted administrations that we've seen in a long time. And when I mean conflicted, I mean many of the appointees that have been appointed to powerful positions within the president's cabinet have actually had really strong ties to the companies that they are now regulating. supposed to be or supposed to be regulating scott pruitt the administrator of the environmental protection agency the epa is a very egregious example of a very conflicted political appointee he has spent his career as the attorney general in oklahoma suing the environmental protection agency for various climate related federal policies that impacted the state And now he is actually in charge of enforcing those same policies that he fought so hard to try and bring down. Those are the kinds of things that I'm extremely concerned about in this current administration. And there are mechanisms within the federal government, including the Office of Government Ethics, that should be keeping a check on those types of conflicts within agencies. Unfortunately, President Trump, when he came into office, rolled back some of President Obama's ethics 
requirements. Individuals that are currently in government that have previously lobbied on behalf of companies for very specific policy purposes should have to, first of all, disclose that information. And second of all, while they serve in government, they shouldn't be able to participate in any policy conversations or decisions related to their previous employer's work. So a good case of this is with the current Environmental Protection Agency, a former representative from the American Chemistry Council, Nancy Beck, is now the Deputy Assistant Administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency and will actually be working on implementing the very bill that she worked on in her capacity at the American Chemistry Council, where she was trying to ensure that chemicals like asbestos would not actually be regulated. So that's a very worrisome thing, and we want to make sure that within government there are these checks on the ways in which companies can influence lawmakers to create policies that not only discount the current scientific evidence, but result in standards or policies that don't actually protect the very public that the missions of the agencies they're operating are supposed to protect. So speaking of the public, to a lot of our listeners, this may sound like something that happens behind closed doors or at least in the halls of agencies and Congress. What can the average person do to influence these decisions? I think one of the first things that people can do is stay vigilant. Watch out for examples of corporations that are suppressing or manipulating science and call them out when you see them, whether it's in your local paper or meeting with your member of Congress. You know, you should really be calling attention to examples where you see special interests interfering in science and resulting decisions. And UCS has created some ways to do this, is that right? Yes, you can join with the Union of Concerned Scientists and become a watchdog for science as a scientist, where you can sort of take part in calling out disinformation when you see it, whether that's in local government or in your local newspaper, or getting involved in more uh, federal fights, like pushing back against congressional measures like the Regulatory Accountability Act that would make it more burdensome for agencies to actually get science-based policies approved. And if you're not a scientist but support science, you can join our Science Champions Initiative, where you can push back against disinformation campaigns like I've spoken about today, or you can defend science-based policies that are being chipped away at and the conflicts of interest that make up our current administration. Thanks, Jenna. Thank you. So for Got Science, this is Brian Wadsworth on the campus of Cal Lutheran University in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for listening. Back to you, Colleen. Thanks, Brian. And now it's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest weird news from an administration that's ignoring decades of research on contraception. Ashreya Dervasala has the story. Most health insurance plans cover birth control, pills, IUDs, implants, etc. Most employers offer health insurance plans. This should not be news to anyone, nor should it make the news. Birth control is safe birth control is effective. In 2017, these should not be controversial statements. But here we are again, because the Trump administration just issued rules rolling back the mandate in the Affordable Care Act that requires employers to offer insurance plans that cover birth control. Now employers have an easier path to refuse to cover birth control costs for their employees, which is totally something your employer should get to decide. Instead of admitting that the administration did this because they care more about politics and public health, the official rule includes their attempt at a scientific explanation for why birth control shouldn't be covered. Spoiler, 
their science is not science. First, the legalese claims that there's no way to tell whether birth control is effective. They obviously unsubscribe to the New England Journal of Medicine because in a published study, women who were given free contraceptives had birth rates, abortion rates, and pregnancy rates less than half those of the average American. They could also look around at college campuses and see that most students who are sexually active are not carrying around babies to their 101 classes. Science says birth control works. Second, they claim it's unsafe because of the possibility of blood clots. Science says pregnancy increases your likelihood of getting deep vein thrombosis at a higher rate than taking birth control. Next, the easily flustered authors of this rule suggested that expanded access to birth control makes people, excuse me, women, more likely to engage in risky behavior. A, that is also not scientifically borne out. Study after study shows no change in sexual behavior in those who use birth control. And B, if that were true, we'd better make drugstore condoms cost $500 apiece to protect men from risky sexual behavior too. There are loads of reasons why people take birth control, and it's not always for contraception. For example, between 5 and 10% of women between the ages of 15 and 44 have polycystic ovary syndrome, which is often successfully treated with birth control. Surely some of them work for employers who'll be seeking exemption from covering it. Good luck, ladies. Our healthcare should be based on science, not people's feelings. The Trump administration may claim to care about protecting women's health, but we know they're actually endangering women and sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Special thanks to Chris Borland and Jenna Reed, policy analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. If you'd like to check out the disinformation playbook, you can find it at ucsusa.org playbook. And you can watch the public service announcement with Chris Borland at ucsusa.org CTE. Our correspondent is Brian Wadsworth. Sidelining Science is brought to you by Shreya Dervasila. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Got Science, go to gotsciencepodcast.org. Or even easier, you can pick us up on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please, share us far and wide. Thanks, and see you next time.